G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. I'm Josh Zepps. Uh, thank you so much for joining me as a part of my tribe, part of my community, my friends, my people, my countrymen. Uh, if you're a member of the Substack community, thank you again. You don't have to be paying any money. You don't even have to give me your credit card information. You don't got to do nothing. I just want to gauge the support for the show by getting you to, to sign up uh, with your email uh, account, and then you'll just be uh, you'll just be one of mine. You'll be, uh, and I'll be one of yours. We'll just be in a little uh, tete-a-tete, a little dance, a little pas de deux. And if you're not doing that, uh, I'm not sure why you're listening to this show, because uh, obviously, if you listen to this show, then you like me. And if you like me, then you should probably want to keep in touch with me and you want to help, uh, you know, this show do what this show does, which is have sane conversations in an increasingly insane world. So sign up if you haven't. If you, uh, if you are on the, if this is the premium feed that you're listening to, then uh, you'll, <laughs> you'll have a wonderful experience listening to Bridget Fetacy and I. Uh, get tangled into knots over uh, our first date questions like uh, whether or not she would rather live in a murder house or a sailboat. That's an in-joke about a previous episode, which she has a lot of fun with. Uh, And uh, yeah, she noodles on some of the more profound things in life towards the end of the show. You won't get that if you're not subscribed to the Substack, but you'll still hear, you know, Bridget, who's wonderful, talk about most things, uh, including uh, Israelis in Sri Lanka. Uh, Bridget is a a digital media phenomenon, really. She's one of those strange people who has exploded in this space in between the ideologues on both both sides. She was previously a heroin addict and alcoholic and turned her life around, but not in a highly puritanical, finger-wagging, judgy sort of way. And she came to my attention. I don't remember where, but she was, you know, doing quite a lot of press on like Gwen Beck's show and Dave Rubin's show and Joe Rogan's show during, I guess, the height of the culture war and the pandemic. And she's got her own fabulous podcast called Walk-In's Welcome, which is a bit of a staple. She has a YouTube show called Dumpster Fire, which is kind of a satirical commentary on the news cycle. And she's a writer who's been published frequently in The Spectator and HuffPost, Playboy, The Federalist, Washington Examiner, The New York Post, The New York Daily News, and so on, sharing her opinions and her advice and her stories. I won't say much more about Bridget. I mean, she's also a comedian, so she's very funny, but she's just a warm, wonderful, heartfelt, thoughtful person. I hope you enjoy this conversation with her as much as I did. The one and only Bridget Fetterzy. I know this is so funny because I feel like you and I have been trying to have a conversation for approximately 70 years and then children, <laughs> there's, been, there's just been basically, you went and got knocked up, I think is what the problem was. I did. I got knocked up. had a little baby of your own. Mm-hmm. How old uh, is he, she now? She is seven months, a little oh. bit over seven months. You're almost out of the woods. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You're almost out of the first woods. I say eight Ugh. months is the first is the first like first eight months is basically you've been deployed to Afghanistan and you're just in the trenches and it's uh, horrendous or it was for me. But then they get then they start moving. Then they do get the harder move. to catch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you know, they start sort of sleeping a little and you know, becoming a little they basically go from being lizard aliens into babies. 
She's been sleeping. She's. I just feel like I'm doing everything wrong, but maybe that's, that's just exactly part of what parenting. Cool parents feel. Yeah, I think that's all right. Uh, and there's so much information now. It's. It, I'm writing a piece about this right now. Actually, if I, you know, if I don't let her cry it out, am I going to end up with a child who's gluing herself to the Mona Lisa <laughs> in 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, is the answer to that question, Bridget. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, uh, I mean, oh, letting them cry it out, that was the best thing that ever happened. The, well, the good thing about twins is you don't, you can't fuck around because you'll die. Like, you need right. to do the shit to get them on a proper sleep schedule. You need to, because if they're all over the place, like one kid all over the place, you can just survive. Two kids, right. same age, out of control, you will die. Right. So you have to be a bit more, like, uh, rigid. rigid, yeah, a bit more mm-hmm. disciplined about it. But when we did sleep training, it was life-changing. I was like, why didn't we do this earlier? Yeah. It's, it's, did you do it or did your, did your wife My, do I'm married it? to a man, but thank you for asking. But he did, I mean, we both did it together, but he was like. Or she. He, he I or was, she. <laughs> he, she, that's right, exactly. He, he was, I must say, better at it. I mean, I was working, I was more of, more the primary breadwinner at that point. And, mm. uh. But you know what? It was not as hard as getting up in the night. Like the sleep yeah. training, you know, is it takes you a couple of nights and you feel terrible. We didn't do it like I think there I think people have misconceptions about it and they think that either you just have to be completely at the whim of the child or you have to be Cruella Deville like standing there while the child loses their mind for an entire night and right. exp- showing them no love. But like the standard thing that pediatric psychologists recommend is like some sort of a hybrid thing where like there are lots of tactics where you know they they cry but you don't come in immediately you like you go up to them and you shush them but you don't touch them there's a fade out method there's a fade exactly that whole yeah and you gradually would just withdraw yourself so it's clear to them that they're not going to get cuddles and then they just learn to sort of they learn that sometimes during the night you wake up and that's okay yeah, my friend, uh, she said she liked it because it taught her daughter to deal with disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> At an early age. At seven yeah. months. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. That's right. But then I think eight months something changed, and then I think about like 20 months something changed, and then about like three, three and a half, they actually became moderately enjoyable. Oh, okay. Yeah. Only... Only a couple of years to go. <laughs> Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. No, she's How have you been, been finding she's it? a joy. Yeah? I love it. It's been challenging um, because I'm more of the breadwinner at the moment. And so I was back to work at six weeks and trying. I don't have a nanny or help or any of that stuff. Right. So just trying to balance creating content and creating a baby in this first year has been where I, I inevitably feel like I'm failing at both being yeah. a mom and being yeah. a content creator. Yep. I mean, you seem to be doing fine on the content creation side, so I can't speak to the baby side. Yeah, it's it's been... It's again, I feel like I'm it's easy because she can't talk or move. So the minute that she's, you know, banging on my door yelling mommy, yeah. Things are going to get a little bit more challenging. I have a friend who did sleep training after their child could already walk and talk. 
like that late. And so they were literally mm. like their child got their daughter. This is so horrible. Their daughter would get, would climb out of her cot, her crib and go up to the door and they were holding the door closed while she's on the other side of the door trying to pull the door screaming mummy 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 and like mummy is like in a tug of war with this goddamn door i was like man you really should have done that two years ago yeah that's that's why i'm getting i'm getting on it it but i have to yeah yeah i can't just rip the band-aid off though because she's been it's a long story and of of failure as my uh, I was so good like month two she was sleeping in her crib and Mm. through the night pretty much but then we started traveling and traveling as you know messes everything up maybe you don't know but I know I do I'm sure you do my kids were born in the states and we moved them to Australia when they were two months old uh, oh wow Mm. I love Australia I was just writing about Australia last night why Mm mm-hmm um, because I spent time on an Osho ashram right outside of Byron Bay and it ended really? up being a little bit sex culty. And <sighs> so I was writing this whole story and just, it, I, it, it got me thinking about, I'm trying to write my, this book basically. And a lot of it is just stories, memoir-esque. And that whole trip to Australia was just so random and me kind of couch surfing through Australia and of course usually in my instance I ended up on this place because I followed a guy to Byron Bay who assured me that there would be places to stay and there weren't and then I found on couchsurfing.com this you know it was like oh come to this yoga retreat well those are to be fair to him those are places to stay I mean a couch is a place to stay of sorts totally yeah but um, I yeah, so then I ended up in the like Ash- Osho ashram. What's an Osho ashram? Um, what does Osho mean? Osho, Osho was that he. I don't know if you saw the documentary that covered it. Wild, wild country. Wild, wild country is think, what it was called, I think and it's it was on all my, about I need the, to Watch this list. Okay, so he was a very controversial figure, and. Um, had a lot of, he was kind he kind of see, saw himself as like, uh, he called himself Zorba the Buddha. So he, he didn't see <laughs> meditating and the spiritual practice didn't need to be so serious. It could be a bit bacchanalian and you could have fun. And he came up with this concept of dynamic meditation and everybody, swapped partners right. they, i knew you were going there they, i knew you were going there yeah. anytime there's a guru who wants meditation to be a bit more fun the fun usually involves him fucking other people's wives and young you should girls. see the documentary it is insane they became like their own well-armed militia in the middle of oregon wow. because it's so crazy it was he's very controversial i think he ended up dying in a prison in Oregon, it's a, it's a crazy story, actually. And then some Aussies. You're in like they took Bay over this like, town. Wow! And so then the Aussies were like, "Oh, mate, we got to do a bit of that in Byron Bay." Yeah, and the guru there is very strange. He said he was in his 80s, but I think he was just lying and actually was really in his like 60s to make it seem like he was more more mm. you know vir- viral than he and and just alert and together than he really was but he was he was a maniac you know they would break you down and 
that was the whole thing on and make you take a new name. I took a new name. What was your name? Prem Sarita. Prem Sarita. Prem Sarita. It means river of love. <laughs> Prem P R E M? Yes. Prem Sarita. Okay. I'm just gonna call you Prem from now on. That's cool. That's uh, And to people who don't know Byron Bay, who might be outside of Australia, it is the hippie. It started out as a hippie counterculture uh, town. It has now become fantastically wealthy, and it's where, like, Chris Hemsworth and Crocodile Dundee mm-hmm. live. But uh, it, it still it still has a little bit of the DNA of the old uh, counterculture movement. So it doesn't Particularly- surprise me. Yeah, particularly I think in the bush, like where we mm. we were more inland, and then there's that little town where the farmers market is. Nimbin. I can't remember the name. Nimbin. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that's the that's uh, still kind of the counterculture pot, like acid capital. Yeah, a lot of ayahuasca was being yeah. done when when I was there. I didn't, but I know a lot of the people I, who are on the ashram were starting to partake in the ayahuasca ceremonies over there. And were you still on drugs at the time? Um, I was drinking and doing drugs. I had taken a year off before and then I was, I bought a one way ticket to Australia and right before I left, I'm like, I'm not going to be sober in Australia. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. And then I, so yeah, but on the ashram, you couldn't drink or do drugs real. I mean, they had some kind of allowances for like mushrooms and ayahuasca, I think, but for the most part, you couldn't. You couldn't drink or do drugs. I ended up getting very drunk in town and then bringing a back bunch of wine back to the place. <laughs> and the, my punishment was that I had to share all the wine with everybody. <laughs> of course. And then have so sex I with the I guess there were some allowances. Yeah. <laughs> and then have sex with <laughs> Exactly. That's <laughs> the standard punishment here at the ashram, <laughs> as everybody knows. <laughs> Uh, well, it's funny that you're writing about that because uh, not a lot of uh, not a lot of you know, you know Australia is a funny place. We only get press in the states when uh, someone gets eaten by a crocodile or someone gets eaten by a shark or there's like viral footage of like the police uh, getting being too strict on COVID or you know there's mm. it, it has to be something very sensational. It's never just like uh, the Australian Parliament passed you know such and such a law. It's just that nobody cares. Nobody cares. About it felt show. very Big Brotherish to me when I was there. Actually, really, just yeah, I, it was something that I felt very. Um, just all the cameras everywhere on the roads because we drove from Sydney up to Byron Bay, and that was oh yeah the one of the first things I noticed was all those speed cameras. That yeah, you, you have. can't speed. They make it. They made no. a decision like in the eighties and nineties that they're going to get serious about drunk driving and speeding, mm-hmm. and they were just like, well, we'll just put random breath tests up all over the place every Friday and Saturday night and like put speed cameras in and we'll just mail you a fine. And if you get enough fines, then you lose your license. And it's not like the wow. States where everybody's just flying around the 405 at 90 miles an hour. Yeah. We have, we have a lot of automobile deaths in the United <laughs> States. But you got your freedom. So that's the, uh, that's the thing. Like they're trade-offs. My partner's <laughs> from New Hampshire, and every time we're there, I see the the cop cars that literally emblazoned on the side of them. Because I know you're from the Northeast as well. Say, "Live free or die" in yeah, massive letters, like on the side <laughs> of a cop car, and to someone, you're like you're probably gonna die. Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm like. <laughs> is that a threat? Like, what if I don't, what if I don't want to live as free as you do? 
Like, is that like you're gonna with your death wish? Yeah, you're gonna shoot me, officer, if I'm That's funny. if I'm insufficiently libertarian. Um, but anyway, but I don't know if you remember Bill Bryson wrote a book about Australia, the you know the humorist, and uh, he mm-hmm. has a great stat in it, which is he goes back through, he does like a Lexus Nexus search or something of all the references to Australia that have been published in the American press, and he compares them to other things that the U.S. media writes about. And he says that to Americans, Australia is more important than bananas, but a lot less important than ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Just on a a number of I was just thinking about Coffs Harbour. Have you ever been to the big banana? (laughs) (laughs) Tell people what the big banana is. It's literally a big banana. (laughs) But when you say big, I mean, you, people might think it's three feet long. No, it's a, no. like a hundred foot tall banana. Yep. Yeah. I stopped there on my, on my road trip back down to mm. Sydney from when my the trust fund baby who abandoned me in Byron Bay to the sex cult picked me back up like three weeks later. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> and then we ended up stopping along the way home at all these different places, and Coffs Harbour was Coffs one of Harbor. them. You know, Australia doesn't just have a big banana. It, I mean, Australia. It is funny how like you get a, you get to look back on the place where you're from when you leave it, or talk to other people and see how weird it is. Australia has a big, uh, pretty much everything. So like towns will vie for the largest thing. So there's not mm. only the Coffs Harbour big banana, there's a big prawn, there's a big merino sheep in one town, there's a big mango. So each town will be like, okay. oh, mate, you think the Coffs Harbour big banana's good? You should see our prawn. And there'll be like a 120-foot <laughs> prawn. They'll be like, don't go, don't drive, don't drive 400 miles down the road to the big banana. Just take your photo in front of the big prawn right here. I felt that there was a bit of a Texas vibe to yeah. Australia, actually. We're a, basically obedient Texans. We're Texans oh. without the the rugged individualism. Okay. Where Texas meets Which... Canada. We're we're Texan we're like the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Whereas we're peculiar like Texans and then obedient like Canadians. It's weird though, because honestly, when I was traveling around the world, the the new Americans on the road at the time were Australians. They were, and perhaps they were the bogans, as you might call them, but they were the loudest, most obnoxious oh, yes. group of people oh, yeah. anywhere you went. Absolutely, and the, they were absolutely out of their minds. Mm, I mean, mm. the guys that I knew in Sri Lanka, they were literally out of their minds. Yeah. They would do a bunch of ketamine and mm-hmm. wrestle in the surf. And then they were jumping off, you know, one of the guys was a base jumper and he was just any chance he had a, to jump off a cliff into a death defying, least small little target he would take. Yeah. It was like, these guys were maniacs. Aussies. Are, yes. We are obedient, but also tough and fun. You got to admit. Very fun. No, they were my best. I I, I have a, a true love of Aussie Aussies. I think the when you're traveling around, and Americans probably would be this fun if they traveled more. But the kind, but Americans don't seem to go outside of America as much. You being an exception, the kinds of Americans who you tend to meet when you're backpacking around exotic parts of the world are either you're like uh, Northwest kind of Pacific Coast. 
people who are really, let's face it, Canadians in disguise, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or they're just very touristy. You know, they're, they're your Midwestern people who are dressed in tourist gear with the Hawaiian shirt and the camera, and they're a little bit lame-o. Uh, the people who are cool yeah. are, you know, they're usually Israelis or Aussies or Kiwis or Israelis too. So many on the road. Yeah, yeah. And Sri Lanka, where I was, I was supposed to go for two weeks. I ended up staying for two months and I loved it. It's such a shame, all of the unrest there, but it was my favorite country probably I've ever been to. And the place where I was, was a surf break. And it was just, I stayed there long enough to see the most traveling people. And it was always Aussies and Russians love Rush love it down there, and huh. um, Israelis. Yeah, not not a lot of Russians and Germans. Anymore. Yeah, and Germans. Germans too, travel. Yeah, yeah. They travel more than anyone. Yeah, well, they don't, but there are more of them. Like you know, they're like four times the popul three or four times the population of Australia. So you'd expect. Yeah, I did. More. I did like it there, though. I I really could have. I almost went full expat and stayed in Australia. Well, you should come down. You should this... find some, like, once the kid's old enough to travel, actually, before she's two, so that you don't have to pay for a, a you know, a full fare ticket, you should uh, come down. We'll find some junket for you to do, like speaking tours or some shit like that. Get someone else to pay for the business class seat. <laughs> well, we, I, I do love it. It's very, I ended up. I ended up actually in New Zealand instead with a with a Kiwi. So well, now, was my, there a sex drug cult in New Zealand as well? No, that that it was this whole entire this whole story is actually so crazy of how the whole me just buying a one way ticket and how it all unfolded. It it would take me the entire duration of your podcast plus <laughs> to tell the story. Okay. I'll wait and re- but I'll it's read basically, it in the book. Yeah, it's just, it's so wild. It's just one thing unfolding into another thing and me just being on my own. And I was, I went to New Zealand and I worked on a horse trekking farm and it was, or a horse trekking like company, I guess, not farm, but they, and I didn't know anything about horses, but I do have a very big mouth and I'm good at promoting. So they would just give me flyers and tell me to like go into Queenstown and just Mm. promote. Mm. (laughs) Sure. I imagine that you would be more aggressive at the promotion than a mild-mannered New Zealander would be. Yeah, be I was going to have an next year going, Would you like to come on a little horse ride? And you'd be like, come on down! Get your ass on a horse! I would be like, come on, you guys want to go Lord of the Rings it up yeah. while you're here? <laughs> The uh, the problem with having a, a you know the reputation that Australians and New Zealanders do abroad of being the the wild uh, tough you know uncontrollable travelers is that if you're a mild mannered effete like half Jew gayish kind of guy like me, <laughs> you keep getting into trouble abroad because everyone thinks I'm tougher than I am. I remember you mentioned ayahuasca. The only time I did ayahuasca was in New York. I lived in New York for most of my professional life. And I just came back here when I had kids a few years ago. And uh, there was this like Peruvian dude. <laughs> you, you didn't want them to die in a school shooting. You're like, all right, <laughs> well, time to go. <laughs> it was partly that. It was partly like just everyone losing their minds over Donald Trump and me not wanting to work in the media in during the Trump administration. And mm-hmm. uh yeah, I got a job offer back here, and my partner was like, "You know what? Yeah, let's just do it. Let's just go and have, chill out a little bit." 
Um, and the the Peruvian guru who was doing this overnight ayahuasca ceremony in Brooklyn, uh, like everyone comes up and like there's chanting and, you know, bells and shit. And he sort of takes your measure by like looking at you and then decides how much ayahuasca he's going to give you on the first dose and pours it into a little urn for you to drink from. And when I come up, he's like, how are you? I'm like, I'm good. You have an accent. I was like, yeah. Where are you from? I was like, Australia. He goes, ah, okay, tough. You are tough. And like, <laughs> like no, me, no, no. me a triple dose. He's like, Australians oh, no. are always tough. Like, I'm like, you don't know this Australian. <laughs> sir, excuse me, sir. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you did you end up getting in touch with your Australian DNA I did. toughness I on did. that I did, have a, I did actually it was great it was the perfect uh, it was the perfect dose didn't need any more when it came to the second uh, second round but did you end up doing any of that that stuff no. elsewhere no and then I got sober before it really became like the the thing to do. Yeah, the the current thing. And does so. sobriety for you extend to that kind of thing? I mean, I know some people who are I'm sober drink wise as well, uh, and I have mm -hmm. some friends who are, you know, sober on recreational drugs, but don't really think of psychedelics as being fun. They're more like spiritual tools. Right. Or there's like California sober, which is, you know, you don't do hard drugs or alcohol and you smoke weed. So that's right. Another... Yeah, that seems a little um, weird to me. But <laughs> I, I, I feel. Yeah, it's uh, like weed's not going to change I, your I life. Weed. You know what I mean? It's not like weed's not ayahuasca. It's not like oh, I'm getting in touch with my spiritual side. Weed, you're just using weed the same way other people use alcohol. So, you know. Anyway, but yeah, tell me, what, tell me what sobriety means to you. Um, I, I mean, really for me, I, I, I have such a addictive personality, what I've really realized over the years. And I, anything that alters the way that I feel, I get addicted to pretty quickly. And with psychedelics i mean i guess i could make like a carve out for them if i wanted in my sobriety i i understand the spiritual tool aspect of them but the i do worry about the you know when i used to do mushrooms i would drink like a case of beer coming down it's right. always the come down that worries me right. in terms of how am i going to manage the come down from something like that because and I've had friends in sobriety who've done ayahuasca and they don't see it as, as a thing and they've had a lot of benefits from that. I, I just don't feel at this present moment that could change. I don't feel the need to to do... I, I don't need to have some life-changing spiritual experience. I don't see why I would do that. <laughs> my my yeah. life is very... You know, I've worked through a lot of trauma. I, I, my life has been very, I feel very blessed. I don't, I don't know that, I feel like whenever people do that, they're trying to like really work through something. Mm. Like that mother right. wound or the, you know, the trauma they experienced or abandonment. And I'm sure I have all that. Sure. But I, I don't know that psychedelics I, i've also always been very i always joke that psychedelics are for 
kid, like when I was growing up, I was like, psychedelics are for kids who come from good homes. Like they didn't have <laughs> shit hitting the fan all the time at home because you can't really be tripping on acid and, and be worried that like your stepdad's back in the mental institution or whatever, mm. like their, whatever was going down. So I never, I never really enjoyed psychedelics because I don't like being that out of control for any extended period of time. Yeah, I see that. I mean, isn't the whole quest for spiritual fulfillment a little bit of a, like, hashtag first world luxury kind of thing? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean, like, I mean like... even when you're... <laughs> Even when you're talking about the the every story I hear about ayahuasca, like it makes me laugh inside because it's always some Peruvian yeah, or it's someone you know, like this guru. It's like yeah, we've gone to it's like white white colonial man has gone to South America and plucked this mm -hmm. bro out so that we can so that Brooklyn hipsters can pay him too much money to create this <laughs> ersatz spiritual experience for everybody. And he can, it seems like such a white people thing too when yeah, you're talking oh, about totally. it. I'm like, this always sounds like the whitest yeah. white person <laughs> yeah, shit to yeah, me. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> I mean, the dude was—he was probably from Central Casting, you know. He, pro he was probably yeah. from Iowa. <laughs> He's like, "What did you do last night, man? I chose to pretend to be a Peruvian fucking spiritual totally. healer." Uh, <laughs> yeah, my friend told me about their experience. It was like in Malibu, and they're like, "There was this guru." I'm like, "She was probably from like San Bernardino." Yeah, that's right. <laughs> when you say guru, what exactly do you mean by guru? I mean, it's like you would know from like traveling around Sri Lanka and other places that, you know, when people are just busy getting on with their lives, they don't have a lot of time to gaze at their navels and try to figure out what the meaning of the universe is and like why they're broken as a soul. It's like, bro, there's a rice patty that needs to be worked on. Yeah. Yeah, that that was something that was, it, it was interesting to me. I used to, when I was in Sri Lanka, I held, I was this one woman that the Aussies dubbed uh, like her nickname was chompers because you guys have the best nicknames. She didn't have that many teeth. Hey, um, come on, Prem Sarita. Don't talk to us about nicknames. No, you guys have the best nicknames ever. And she invited us to her house jungle side and we went and they got her a new machete and I was trying to help her oh. sell some pineapples one day and I got fired because the English people were so like nickeling, diming this woman who walks up and down the beach trying to sell pineapples. And they're like, oh, the pineapples from the other lady are like probably the equivalent of a, a penny that they would walk over mm. in their country. Wouldn't even stop. And in in on this beach, they're like nickeling, diming in her at nickel and diming her. And I was getting so angry at them. And she was like, you're, you're not helping. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, you're I not just, helping I me. just want to take, I just want to clip from what you just said, just the line, we got her a new machete because I was trying to buy a pineapple and just take that out of context <laughs> and put, make that the promo of the show. Like what the fuck is Bridget Fettersy talking about? Um, yeah, I was once traveling around Indonesia where the currency is, you know, it's sort of like in India where the currency is worth like one billionth of a, of a penny. Uh, and mm. we were eating, and it was actually just after there'd been a, a financial crisis. And so the rupiah was even cheaper than it had been. And I was with a uni, a university friend and we were all eating. There were four of us eating at this place. And it was literally like, you know, 20 cents or 25 cents for a meal. 
and we have this feast. And then at the end, they bring back the change and it's just coins in the middle. And I could just eyeball it that the, the change was about like a cent and a half. And my friend, who I wasn't very good friends with and henceforth never saw again, was rummaging around through the cent and a half to get her quarter share of the cent and a half. Oh, God. And ends up like taking back two thirds of a cent because she doesn't want to leave a tip. I'm like, no. let it go. I think these people have better use for two thirds of a cent than you do. Oh, yeah, that's that's so weird. That kind of cheapness on the the thing I love about traveling in places like that is you can just make someone's month with ten dollars. Yeah, you know, you, you can just. It, we were just in South Africa, actually, during the pandemic. I guess we went for our honeymoon because we got married November 2020. My husband and I and. Oh went to uh, South Africa February of 2021, which oh. you might remember was when <laughs> the timing. South African strain <laughs> was <laughs> was in the news. So right. everyone was telling us not to go, but we ended up going and it was tourism had been so decimated by, you know, all of these restrictions that the country was suffering and the people at the, the parks were suffering and, all the national parks and we had so much fun just like throwing money around. It was, yeah. and it wasn't even that much. Didn't you have trouble getting back or something? Am I misremembering? But wasn't there, didn't people start blocking flights off from sub-Saharan it Africa? Was, um, yeah, there, it was, it was dodgy for sure. The, the problem was you needed that negative PCR test and we had friends who actually got a false positive oh, two no. days before we were supposed to leave. And it, it just, it definitely created like all these, you know, you're like, okay, do we stay here and risk getting COVID? We're in the middle of Kruger National Park or do we get on a plane and go back to Cape Town, and I have friends there. At least we can ride out whatever mm. COVID. Luckily, none of us had COVID, but our friends who were there, they had they have like four children. They were she she's like, I have to get back. They went and did another test and it came back negative. So she got just a random positive. But we had to stay in a hotel room for two days. It was just like it it was weird traveling. And the flights were so empty. Our yeah. flight, there were probably seven of us on the flight. I mean, it's good it's you can weird stretch being out. on those long hauls. Yeah. Yeah. With uh, no one? I had I I was in northern Italy uh in like December when Omicron was exploding. So this is a little bit after that, but uh like the Biden administration still had a you cannot enter the United States unless you get your test done and i think it was within 24 hours of getting on the plane that you had to have your test done which was absolutely crazy because i mean it's not like there was any ever any attempt to do a zero covid thing in the united states so i mean no. like, it's all over the place so we what? still have these we still have something like this for the united states like what fucking difference does it make i mean unless you're going to go hardcore you know and be like all right we're not going to allow any COVID in at all and we're not going to allow it to spread like if you're China okay well that's a compromise that you can make I suppose but it makes absolutely no sense to be anyway you know stopping people yeah. from getting on a plane and coming into the country if everyone there already <laughs> has it and it's like spreading all over the place like what are you doing but anyway I was in I, I was just in Milan for one night because I'd gotten the train over from France I was seeing some family because you know we couldn't leave Australia for the whole we literally did have a zero COVID 
no, two years, basically. And although there was lots of hoo-ha about how brutal it supposedly was when there were lockdown periods, for the vast majority of Australians, for the vast majority of the pandemic, life was just going about normally and there was no COVID because the borders were closed and the state borders mm. were closed. So in places like Western Australia and Queensland and South Australia, you had millions upon millions of people with no masks, no school closures, no social distancing, no isolation, no nothing, just eating out and living their lives. And then everyone eventually got vaccinated and the borders opened and COVID ripped through, but there wasn't the same kind of, you know, disruption that had happened in New York and London and, and Italy and places I mean, like this that. is the beauty of being able to shut your borders right. and be in, being an island. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and you know what? This is a little known tidbit of information that I'll tell you so you can sound interesting at parties, Bridget. But just before the pandemic, what a lot of people don't realize is, you, do you remember Australia had horrendous bushfires? Do you remember yes. seeing that on the news? Like the front page of the New York Times was just like a kangaroo bouncing along in front of just a city on fire. There was just horrendous, the worst like wildfires in history were taking place in Australia between November, I guess like October really, and February as COVID was developing. So no one, yes. no one came to Australia from China and the United States and other places like that. Uh, I honestly think that we would not have been able to get our hands around suppressing the cases of COVID that were here in February and March if it weren't for the bushfires ceasing travel between like, in like I feel November, guilty December, still. January. That's really interesting. That's like one of those Freakonomics things exactly. where, where it's, yeah. yeah, one of the side, the consequences that you never could have foreseen. That's right. Yeah. At the time we're thinking this is the worst thing that's ever happened to Australia. And then like eight months later, we're all just going to the beach while the rest of the world is hunkered down for a pandemic. And we're like, oh, I guess it kind yeah. of worked in our favor in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that, that I was, I was called out by Australians because I was on doing a live stream and I think it came up and I my way of handling all things tragic is to try and make light of them and laugh and yeah. the Australians were like this is not funny I'm like I'm mean, obviously it's not funny and tra tragic but why I what didn't, were they upset about what did you say because I was making light of, for, of them of the because I live in LA right yeah I was yeah. like I was like, we okay, yeah, we li like we have forest fires here every other day. Literally, yeah. <laughs> it feels like something's always burning. And so I was just, I I knew they were catastrophic and they were awful. And I I obviously, as I've mentioned, love Australia. So I I just I handle all to my I think own detriment. I handle almost every single thing that's tragic with an attempt at humor mm. or a dark humor and the Aussies were like they still call me out for it they're like oh weren't you the girl that was giggling mm. about the bushfires I I'm mean like, it's yeah, hard isn't it that was me like I <laughs> that was me <laughs> I, sh I share your instinct to laugh at things but you have to find a way of laughing at the thing where you're not diminishing the thing that you're laughing at as well I mean you don't <laughs> yeah. have to but like if you want it to not come to not land wrong then, yeah, and it was probably a bit too soon. You know, I'm sure they were yeah. still like burning, and everybody was very sensitive. And I, I understand that. And it I, was of a different anyway, scale. I mean, the like the I saw shot totally. satellite shots of how the the smoke from the fires blew across the Pacific, across South America, across 
like Africa across the Indian Ocean and back to Australia, and the same smoke was like the smoke from the fires on the east coast was being breathed in and smelled by people on the west coast of Australia because it went it was so much it went around the entire planet. Like, yeah. So any to any of your listeners who are <laughs> were offended, I apologize. apologize. This is my chance okay. to make to make it right. I love that. I apologize for my you uh, my uh, insensitiveness. I, I love I love that you have a have a piece uh, recently. I was just reading your piece about basic Christmases and how you're gradually coming <laughs> coming around to sort of grudgingly <laughs> liking holidays now that you've got a kid. Um, explain that to people. Are you a, have you traditionally been a Grinch? I have been. Yeah. The holidays were, you know, I think the holidays were tough for me growing up. And, and once my parents got divorced in particular, we would be on planes halfway through the break to split the holiday. And it was, always running around trying to see people. There was always a lot of drama. For some reason, the holidays were very triggering to my mom for whatever reason. So she would always seem to kind of have like a meltdown every Thanksgiving. Or I think this is common in a lot of families, actually. Yeah. And and it was just, a, it, it was traditionally a time that I was like, oh, God. And then as I got older and started just pursuing my own stuff and trying to create whatever I could in terms of content. I I just became resentful of how they're like bullies that force you to partake. It was just it always felt like this bully came along and would yeah. just make me partake in all of like this stuff. Like mandatory fun. Yeah, and and just a lot of drinking too. When I was drinking, it was always like this. This was I was I was just yeah. This was usually the the kind of tail end of a bender that started around Halloween, which my whole year was usually a bender. But this was like the bender on top of the bender that ran through New Year's, and so by Christmas I was really sloppy. I would say for a lot of the years and. I just didn't, I'm not a huge fan of obligation, although I think there's a lot more to be said for that now. Um, but I just, I didn't want to have to like show up at all of these events and I never really could get that into it. Um, so what's changed now? You and, just want to force your daughter to have to do all of this that you didn't want to do? No, I I did no. I think actually I've done a lot of work around it over the years. I still hate Halloween and think it's a trash holiday, and it's, it's great for kids, it's the but best adults holiday. partaking. It's looks great. Ridiculous. What's not fun about it? It's ridiculous. Because <laughs> we, don't, I mean, I was always so overwhelmed by it in New York because they do it through such a big Halloween, and I, oh, I just thought LA. it was. Well, yeah, but LA, you have to like go to a particular place because everybody, everything is so spread out and disjointed. I mean, in New York, you can't avoid it. It's like. I I imagine that in LA, like there are occasional suburban streets where it's not taking place, but New York just explodes in a giant pumpkin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think with, I've done work, just I've created my own traditions and, and I have family out here in California and they, it's now we have just kind of sweet traditions, but I've just had to do work around my my own Grinchness so that every time the holidays didn't come up, I wasn't like, ah, oh, God, 
God, the yeah. holidays, and here they are just to kill your momentum. Like, <laughs> I just wrote about this. This time of year between Thanksgiving and Christmas is like when everyone gets the fuckets. Yeah. And yeah. It's easy to uh, any of your gains. If you lost weight, if you were saving money, you can you can erase those gains in three weeks. Yeah. Easily. <laughs> easily. It's fun though. It's fun. It's fun getting fat and lazy. Uh, it wasn't. Nope. And so, at what point did the drinking part not be fun? Um, there were many points. I think that the most recent rock bottom that led me into this sobriety, which was probably the first one I really took seriously, but the third one in my life. I, the third, me and that, the first one was when I was 19 and I was like, there's no way I'm quitting drinking before I turn 21. That's just not happening. But I will quit heroin, which I did. Mm. And then the that? second one, what? How did you do that? Um, I, I put myself into rehab basically. And then I stayed in a halfway house for like seven months and I, I, I tricked myself into thinking that I wasn't an addict because I was like, oh, heroin was just my problem. So weirdly, it kept me out a lot longer than I might have been out because I just was like, anyone would get addicted to heroin. Mm, right. It's heroin. Right. Not thinking like, yeah, but probably only someone who's like an addict would do heroin. But, right. <laughs> but, but, uh, um, so then the second one was an experimental year where I just wanted to prove to myself that I could not drink for a year. And I did that. I went 13 months. That was right before I went to Australia, actually. And then the the most recent one, I'd come back from two years of traveling around the world and I was back in L.A. One of the things that caused me to go on that giant walkabout was a really bad heartbreak. And I ended up in my hometown before at the end of all of these travels waiting tables and was just back in this rut that I was in in my 20s and I was just so it is that what they say in in the big book and in 12-step programs there's this idea of pitiful demoralization and that really was how I felt and I felt suicidal and I really considered going back and using heroin which was to me a red flag that I basically wanted to die and so I ended up coming back this was on the plane on the way back to LA and I was like maybe I should go you know for a hike before I go cop heroin on Alameda but I did go for that hike and some I don't know. It was like some inch of willingness cracked open and I was able to see that I needed to get sober. I don't know that it was even formulated. I just knew I in that year that I was sober, I felt good and I I reached out to somebody and went to a meeting that night and then kind of begrudgingly stayed sober for many years and now I I love it and can't imagine I can't imagine my life any other way but it took many many years mm -hmm. of being sober before I I would say I truly came to enjoy it I was very resentful that I had to quit drinking yeah. I loved drinking so yeah. it was 
But it was not just drinking. It was drinking and doing blow and, you know, all my bad habits. It was like I, I always say, like, I, I don't smoke. I only smoke when I drink, but I drink every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> where was the hike where you had that realization? Temescal. Do you ever go back there? It's, yeah, I love it. It just it's such a magical place and beautiful, but you it's I go there all the time. It, it just there's a rock at the very I remember going up that hill and I was so gross, like sweating out toxins and molly and cocaine and booze and cigarettes and I'd been so unhealthy and I just felt toxic and I I was. I mean, I had burned a lot of bridges with my family members that I loved. I had I was just really at another rock bottom. I've been at so many rock bottoms. It's it's embarrassing. Does um, that place still evoke that way it of It does being? actually. Mm. Yeah, it does. It makes me feel but Joshua Tree has the same effect on me where it feels like I always say Joshua Tree is my church. It just feels um, sacred to me. Yeah. But definitely Temescal is an easy place for me to tap into that sacred connection to something. And it that's what my husband and I started a podcast called Factory Settings where we just take a topic and talk about it. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist or I guess almost licensed. He's on his way to being licensed. Um, (laughs) He's like the guru at the ashram who has sex. Yeah, he's it's like, a you know, he's got the hours. He has to wait for the state to give you the code, take the test. It's like a whole thing. Yeah. All the stuff. But he so he's an associate marriage and family therapist. And he and I will talk about like this week we talked about gratitude and I'm like, well, we're not going to be able to talk for an hour about gratitude. But then once we start talking, we, I love, I love the conversations because I never know where they're going to go, but it really always starts with what was our kind of factory setting default idea that we had about gratitude. Where did it come from? How was it modeled? What, what was our earliest experience with that concept? And one of the topics that came up that now I want to do a podcast about is this idea of willingness, that little sliver of willingness that opened to maybe being curious about my life looking differently. I remember on that hike, having that moment of being really brought to my knees, feeling toxic and thinking, what does my life look like if I never do this again? If I never drink again, I've spent 20 years, 20 plus years drinking and smoking weed at this point. What happens if I just don't do that? And that's really the adventure I'm on now. I was just reading Bridget Matthew Perry's new autobiography. Oh, yeah. Where he talks about his addiction to pills and uh you know he's at some point he's taken you know 50 or 60 vicodin or percocet you know some kind of oxy uh every single day and he he says several times in the book that he never wanted to use heroin like for him that was that would have been a bridge too far that would have just meant Mm. that he had truly failed if if he had allowed all of these you know heroin adjacent substances to actually turn into heroin it's itself how did you use it the first time? Um, I smoked it. I and it's funny you should ask me this question. The the 
the piece that I just filed, which will come out in Spectator magazine and the print magazine for the next um, edition, so I guess it will be January's, I was writing about Junkie Pride and how I basically lied about the fact that I shot heroin for I don't even know how many years because I was so embarrassed that I had never shot it. And there's this whole kind of hierarchy within sobriety. And I just said I had shot it once. And then I realized, and I'm like, I told this life for so long in my early 19, 20, 21, that I then believed it. And it wasn't even until like five years into this sobriety that I'm like, I never shot heroin. Really? So you never, <laughs> Why am I you holding never injected? This lie? You never injected? No. Right. No, because I never, I never, I knew that would be the end for me. I, A, like needles and B, I just knew I was already so sick from sm smoking and snort snorting it. Wait, I did was you say already, you like, like needles? I like needles. You, like you, I like, like having them. my blood drawn. Really? Yeah, I, I've yeah, I'm I'm weird like that, but I'm not alone. And I've so never I had knew, that. I knew that the whole the I'd seen enough people doing it. I knew that the ritual there's like you know this ritualization of the whole process. Yeah around shooting up and it becomes this like for me it was like smoking a bowl and drinking coffee in the morning or I loved chasing the dragon I liked mm. I liked the ritual around it and um even like cutting lines I liked the it's weirdly like I I never learned how to roll a joint either and you would think that that's something that I would have prided myself on but I never did mm. I was like such a lazy stoner but that's another thing where people have their whole ritual, you know, they have their process. And I think that's some of the hardest stuff when you're quitting that, that like, I couldn't look at tinfoil for like a good solid three years yeah, right. without being triggered. Yeah. Where did you get it to begin with? And how did you, when you say that when you came back to LA and you were hiking, you were thinking, you know, maybe I should just go down and get some, like if you asked me to get weed or MDMA, I'm sure that I could ask around and I'd be able to find someone who knows someone and they'd be able to procure it for me. Maybe cocaine, like, but I kind of, I don't know where I'd start to find heroin. Yeah, that was a, interesting because it mostly I got it through my boyfriend at the time and he got it through like uh, he was in the industry and got it through someone he was working with and then we I was actually living in Minnesota at the time and so it would get like shipped to us from here and and again like I couldn't even look at like a FedEx truck without being triggered for like really? You'd many, order many it years. from a dealer in California and a FedEx van would arrive in Minnesota? Well, no, it wasn't from a dealer. It was from someone like in the industry who was a friend who was sending it to well, us I mean, out in yeah. Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. You can pick your word for that, but uh, I think the I think the FBI would probably call it a dealer. <laughs> probably <laughs> this was so long ago and and so yeah that it it was um sketchy for sure yeah. and then in when we were here yeah it was just like down in certain parts of LA you could kind of suss out who was dealing it and they just kind of walk up to your car or to you and you know you're in a neighborhood and generally people 
My friend actually was just telling a story about how she got kind of ended up in the wrong neighborhood in L.A. and she got pulled over because the cops were like the only reason someone like you is in this neighborhood is to buy drugs. <laughs> That's happened to me. That's happened to me in L.A. as well. I'm like, I'm just looking around. I'm just going for a drive. They're like, sir, you're an idiot Australian. Get out of this area. Like you're either going to get shot or you're going to get you're going to buy drugs. And neither of the, we don't want either of those things to happen. <laughs> That's the weird thing. L.A. is so kind of, you know, split up like that in different neighborhoods. It's not it's very strange. It's a very strange city in that respect. It's very it's a collection of it's a collection of villages interlocked by freeways. It is. Uh, it is. And so then, but what is becoming famous like for, for you? Like, at what point do you go from, you know, this kind of all these problems to realizing is it twitter that does it for you where at what point do you go wow i've got like a i've got a fan base uh yeah i don't i don't get is famous i don't know that i'm famous um famous is i i guess i mean you can use the word a bunch of different ways right i mean it's not like you get mobbed at airports and you're flying private and wearing having having to wear sunglasses so that you can just buy a a coffee at starbucks but you know if you if if i know of you and if joe rogan knows you and you know i don't know there's, there's a certain elite kind of cultural soup that we swim in and you're known to all of the important people in that circle I guess, but I, I think of fame as like, you're, you're, my mom knows, your mom knows my name, you know, it's, it's like, I I don't know. It's maybe, maybe. My mom doesn't, my mom wouldn't know who Matthew Perry is. So that, by that yardstick, he's not famous either. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. You know what I mean? I I mean, you're not waiting. At what point do you go, I'm not waiting tables anymore. I'm not, you know, I guess. It wasn't that long ago, Josh. (laughs) I I guess this is now a thing. I guess for a living now I get, you know, people get to pay me to talk shit. Well, I've always wanted to write. So getting paid to write was really the first iteration of wherever I am now. And that was, I I mean, I was just talking about this. My last paycheck that I received, I think, from waiting tables was like 2019. It was probably the end of 2018 mm. that I was still, and I was still going up and working on farms to make extra money just to survive. I mean, I'd been freelancing for a long time and I started writing for Playboy in 2015 and then they gave me a column and that was really when I started doing what I had always wanted to do and come out here to do, which was be a writer. And I had been doing stand-up comedy as well, which I started doing in 2010. And then I traveled for those years and came back and was grinding away at that again. And then I don't know, like the, the story of how I became an accidental pundit is is really hilarious. (laughs) I mean, I feel like I just was playing a a gigantic game of yes and, like an improv game. Mm -hmm. It was like, yes, and now I will appear on Glenn Beck and (laughs) have a conversation. But that was really just more that I happened to be in these weird intersections that were were experiencing some cultural shifts at that moment and then during the Trump years when everyone lost their mind like working at Playboy being in comedy these are all these I just happened to be in those places when suddenly everyone was getting me too'd and 
comedy comedians were like, why can't I make these jokes anymore? And, and, uh, you know, everything, everyone went crazy. Mm. So I started writing, I guess, about more like culture things when I was at Playboy, actually, they gave me quite a few columns when I was still there. And then, and then I was unceremoniously let go from Playboy. And after that, it, things just got, got kind of weird, but I started the, my podcast walk-ins welcome in 2018. And I'm, I will hope that you will come on it. I love that podcast. I've been able to talk to I so many people. Thank you. I'm excited about that. But I'll turn the table on you. Yeah. I've talked to so many people it's about great, so it? many different things. I mean, you have an excuse and, to pick people's mind. I mean, that's what I love about this show as yeah. well. You know, I do a normal radio show on uh, where we, I ha have sort of some kind of a duty to be somewhat responsible in who I talk to and what we say, and mm -hmm. like it has to have some tethering to things that are going on in the in the world. Um, because it's the public broadcaster, but here, like, we can just talk about you know Israelis in Sri Lanka for as long as we want, and you can pick somebody's brain right. about about whatever the fuck. And it's it's a it's an enormous luxury. It's the kind of thing that I would do, and that I'm sure you would do, even if you know we even if it wasn't a job. It's uh, it's great fun. Mm -hmm. And then I mean, I, so I'm interested also in you said that you were sort of at this intersection at this particular moment in time when everyone was losing their minds. It was Trump. It was. I, I mean, maybe you 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 found yourself in a, I guess, a niche in the culture where cancel culture was a big thing. Like there was, I guess, wokeness was peaking, hopefully peaking. Like I, I think I'm interested in what you think about that, whether you think that's on the decline mm -hmm. and whether our tolerance for cancel culture, whether, whether more people are getting more fed up with it. And so, you know, therefore things are, are turning. But I, I guess I noticed you as being like a rare voice of here's a reasonable person who's not a right-wing, like, shitwad, but who is willing to, <laughs> you know, to just call bullshit on the left at a time when people were very hungry for that sort of sanity. Yeah, I think that I that's what probably has cost me lots of opportunities, maybe in the industry, like in Hollywood and in some of the industries I would hope to be in. But, but I think really, I, I just was trying to understand. I didn't understand how Trump could go from being the butt of everybody's late night jokes for an entire year and overnight becoming Hitler, you know, be, once he won, basically. Mm. And that was where I just didn't, I was like, how really, really that, that afraid of this? I like, he's a buffoon. Is he a buffoon or is he dangerous? I just didn't understand. And I do think the guy is a buffoon and I also think dangerous to a certain extent. But he he didn't strike like I have this. I just would kind of ask people like play the tape forward when you're saying this is literally the next Hitler. You, you think people are going to end up on trains mm. like the, this seems like a diminishing of someone who is truly an evil person who had an ideology and i don't really know what trump's ideology even is other than he's obsessed with people you know needing to be liked and paid attention to well yeah i mean it also means that in the future if we actually do get potential tyrants in 
the United States, we will have cried, cried wolf so many times that it's like, because I mean, it well, is conceivable. What, yeah. Like, what if you get someone who really, of course, who's a Nick Fuentes or one of like these people who's a, a real, like, open white supremacist anti Semite and, you know, wants to really do something about the Jewish problem with like their right. deputy, <laughs> their like, I don't know, Vice President Kanye or whatever it is, like that. That wasn't the sense I got from Trump, no. you know, that he was not, that he had any kind of like, that's what I, I'm, I, I mean, I have a friend who's a Holocaust survivor and he was like, you know, Hitler wrote a book. Yeah, <laughs> he was very right. clear yeah, about what exactly. he wanted to do. Yeah. And he was also competent. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah. He was disciplined. He was disciplined. Yeah, exactly. He knew mm -hmm. what he wanted to achieve. Yeah. I mean, and the. I just got, I very quickly got weary coming back to why I left the States as well with the, the coarseness of the analysis of him and how boring and kind of lazy it was. And, you know, calling the, calling his immigration changes a Muslim ban when, you know, there were lots of Muslim, majority Muslim countries that he wasn't restricting immigration from. He was restricting immigration. It was a very kind of, you know, nasty, crude thing to do to suddenly ban people from these very, very, very troubled third world terrorist adjacent places. But to call mm -hmm. it a Muslim ban is just lazy. To talk about kids in cages. Well, yeah, I mean, when you incarcerate people who've broken the law, then they end up in cages and that's really cruel, but we don't use that. By the way, they're still in cages, right? Like, <laughs> well, thousands and thousands of them. It's a, it's a horrendous thing, but I mean, just, it's so obviously an emotional ploy to phrase it that way, instead of saying mm -hmm. like, you know, family separation and like the incarceration of people. I don't know. It, it just felt like there was a lot of, there was a lot of lazy group thing hyperbole. And like, yeah, hyperbole yeah. and pushing of buttons and everything that I was like, I don't really want to be part of this conversation because I don't really want to defend <laughs> the guy. And also I didn't want to become like Dave Rubin or something. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want my, and it is something I sort of admire about you as well is like a lot of people who became the, the kind of contrarian centrists who didn't want to join the group think of the left have just kind of drifted over to the other side and become what I regard as hacks on the right. It's, it would be easy. You know, there's, there's, it would be, I can, I mean, a part of me understands how and why that happens because I am still poor. <laughs> <laughs> you want some of that Reuben money, baby. <laughs> and they're not. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, for so people who don't know poor. the economics of this, I mean, they get paid yeah. by conservative, like by shadowy, like conservative evil go globo corps to keep doing their, you know, they get sponsored by, uh, you know, oil companies and things like that. And, uh, you know, rich benefactors. <laughs> and Reuben's defense he did also create you know locals which i think they're in and now rumble bought it so i actually think there's there's some tech yes that, he, that was a social he, a social platform wasn't it yeah and he gets lots of views on youtube so he gets to sell ads against that so it's not not wholly corrupt but it's 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 capture by a particular audience and i would say pandering to that audience in what i regard as an unprincipled way i just think that they're there were lots of people who kind of pivoted into the lane I was just like screaming from in in post Trump. Like you know, you see, um, I think Barry Weiss like very very effectively mm. pivoted out of mainstream media into common sense, and is really has the vision to try and build something and. Glenn Greenwald and um, Matt Taibbi, they're all people who have 
successfully I see left mainstream media and seem to have an audience that try holds them somewhat accountable, I think, as much as you you can. Yep. Um yep. so there it there seems to be a growing you know, I think Rogan has always held the center mm, for mm. pretty much everybody. I don't, I don't know where we'd be without him and his voice and his platform in this discourse now. As much shit as that man gets, he really has left it open for many people of different, you know, beliefs to come sit down and talk with him for hours. Oh, and... It's incredible. And he's been so generous to so many people. I mean, I was texting yeah. him the other day, so, like just saying like, I, I don't say thank you enough, but like he, I've been he's on his so show generous. seven times. He was, he was, I just wouldn't be where I am and I wouldn't have the opportunities if I, that I did if he hadn't just spotted me on HuffPost Live one day in 2014 and invited me on the show and then continued wow. to support me and it, and told me that I have to do a podcast and, uh, yep. you know, came on my he podcast and, like, one day just let me use his studio in L.A. to do a yeah. podcast with him and, like, Sam Harris. And it was just a – I think people don't understand – people who scream at, at Joe and people like him – just don't know what they're talking about. They don't see what's going on behind the scenes. They don't see the, they don't see the human being. They're just like, I don't like this no. aspect of your output. And therefore I think that you're, you know, an evil force. Like he's a human, he's a human being who's trying to have interesting conversations and do the right thing anyway. And he's really done no nothing differently. You know, he's like doing the same thing that he was doing. He just suddenly took on this like outsized influence in the culture at a certain moment. And I, it's not, I don't think anything he ever wanted or expected. You yeah. Know, just to, and it's like, all there was of, this massive, it's like, they sorry. Think that just, well, sorry, it's just like, they think that all of a sudden, if people like what you do a lot, then you have to suddenly change it to make it a mainstream conform to mainstream media norms like mm -hmm. how many followers mm -hmm. how many listeners does he need before he before you think that he has to stop doing his show and start doing the show that you want him to do like is it is it at a million right. 10 million 100 million like at what point does it does his show no longer become is his show no longer his show and the show that made him successful you know and starts to have to suddenly become npr right no it's it's not him it's like he pioneered this whole so much of the space that we're in and I'm yeah I'm just he's a good friend I'm eternally grateful to him and I think that he's given me so many opportunities he told me to start the podcast that I started and he's been so supportive and just I I'm so yeah I think there's there's a lot of people who occupy this weird independent space I you're another one you're someone else who is in this space mm. but I I still haven't um, I, I still feel like there were definitely moments in 2017, 2018. I was joking the other day. I'm like, someday I'm going to write a book, the money I turned down, like the money I said no to. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Just that's heartbreaking. The deals I've said no to. Yeah. It's yeah. hard. You know, I was like, I've been, I had $7 in my bank account for a long time. I have a lot of financial insecurity. I, I can look around and see that people in my space are making millions of dollars. And it's hard for me not to compare and despair, which is not good for me in general. But I have to just take a step back and be like, I'm doing fine. Mm. I'm, I've am i hired my cousin on full time. We're creating content that we love and that we're proud of. And that's really all I can do 
because it grounds me in whether I should say yes or no to some of these deals or offers to come, you know, be a part of a bigger enterprise that's perhaps more right wing leaning. Mm, don't do it. And I just don't, don't, do don't want to do it. At the end of the day, you only have, and I think that our audiences appreciate our, like, I, I just keep saying like a kind of a bullshit free attitude towards things, right? independence, autonomy, like not being bossed around, not having to kowtow to other people. The moment you lose that and start like singing from a hymn sheet that other people are paying you to sing from, well, then you've lost the only thing that people liked about you in the first place. Yeah, that's a really good point. And honestly, I'm not really great at having other people be my boss any ever or anymore, but I was freelance for so long and I liked waiting tables because I could really control my own schedule to a certain extent. And I've just been on this, like forging my own path for so long that it would be weird to like go clock in and have to crank out a bunch of content that was, you know, maybe I was the most far left wing person, but then I'd just be like the most hated person <laughs> at this organization. But mm. it, eventually I think you just, you drift. It's over. hard. You it's hard. Over. It's hard. Yeah. It's, it's easy because you're getting, you know, accolades. So yeah. it's, it's very human to go where those accolades are coming from. And I mean, speaking of this whole independent, you know, media movement and Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi and uh, Glenn Greenwald and Andrew Sullivan and these people who've left mainstream media and are now creating empires of their own. Do you have a Substack, or do you, do you, are you off that platform? No, I have a Substack. So I was on Patreon, moved over to Locals, and I don't really start anything anymore until I know that I can do it consistently. And so in August, I launched my Substack. And then we are doing um, like a weekly letter from the politically homeless because I have thousands of letters from people who feel politically homeless over the years. Mm. And I find them just fascinating. I love them They're I love people will write me and tell me like their whole story of how they ended up wherever they might be. And it's just, I, I love them. And then that's where my husband and I started our podcast actually. And it's available wherever else you get podcast factory settings, but it's also on Substack. And I have my geriatric mommy blog where I'm writing about being a mom. That's where I wrote that piece about regretting being a slut, mm. which was like took on a life of its own. And cool. One one thing I on. want to do before we before we go is uh, is play first date questions, which is I just ask you some questions, some really bad first date questions, and you just answer like kind of raw shark, you know, first thing that comes into your mind. And uh, so okay. people who are premium subscribers to the show get this, and if if they're not, then uh, then uh, they can see me on the next episode. And screw them. And then screw, <laughs> then screw, and screw <laughs> them. Um, uh, let me see. I've got a long list here. When was the last time you walked for more than an hour? Um, walked for more than an hour? Probably like last week. <laughs> <laughs> Where? I walk a lot. You know, I have a baby, so well, I like true. to walk her around and try and get her to nap. Was that just walking around the living room? No, like the in her stroller. Right, okay, okay. Just down like the, in her, in the, the streets of your neighborhood. Yeah. What part of LA are you in? 
Um, I prefer not to say because. <laughs> okay, someone lived in Beverly Hills. Uh, what? No, <laughs> no, I'm. I just don't like people to know where I live. That's, that's fair <laughs> enough. Um, uh, what's the best ice cream? That was just a little taste of our first date questions, which you'll be able to hear all of if you subscribe to Uncomfortable Conversations. Not just the questions, but of course all of our banter around them, which become a subsequent little episode of themselves. Uh, If you do subscribe, you will not only hear that, but you'll also hear no ads on any episode ever. And you'll get additional content, including opportunities to connect directly with me. You can subscribe at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com or follow the links in uh, the uh, the podcast description. Uh, otherwise, I'll see you next time on Uncomfortable Conversations. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.